Hello and welcome along to the Property Academy podcast by Opus Partners. I'm your host, Tim McKnight. I'm Andrew Nichol. And today on the show, we are once again joined by April Hasselow from Opus Mortgages, and we are talking about the perfect mortgage approval. What does the absolute ideal process look like? And the reason we wanted to do this is so many people say, you know, Andrew and April, what does it actually look like? What actually happens when I get my mortgage approved, when I go and get one from a bank? And there are still some steps that surprise people, even those who have listened to over 1,500 episodes of this podcast. So April, break it down for us. Where does it all start if I'm using a mortgage advisor? So with this process, I've looked at if you were buying a turnkey investment property and doing it in the golden method of 100% leverage, you're using 20% from one bank and 80% from another so that you have split banking. So I'm buying an investment property, this example, with no cash, I'm borrowing all of the money to invest. Yes. And so the first step that you would look to do is book in with your bank or preferably an advisor. And then what happens from there? So it depends on the advisor's process. So at Opus Mortgages, we like to get people to start some of the paperwork off. So filling in a bit of an application form so we can spend more time talking to people about what it is that they're actually looking to do and a little bit less on how long you've lived at a property for. We'll often ask for documents up front from people so we can start assessing income in pieces that can be quite niggly with how a bank would assess it, but other advisors might get the paperwork sent in after the meeting. Now, back when I was a broker, I used to take out a seven-page form by the NZMBA, and I used to fill it out with a customer, and it took you know for 10 minutes or something like that. What's the process now? Is it developed with technology? Surprised they had pen and paper when you were doing it. I thought you might have been an abacus. <laughs> so now what we often do is get people to fill in something up front, a link online to fill in and then we're able to work on getting that sent to the bank and we run through it with people in the meeting just to run through any information that might be missing, a bit of clarification around things before we also then get the remaining documents that we might require. Okay, and what kind of documents do you normally provide? So things like identification, visas if people are non-New Zealand residents, things around income, so pay slips, IRD summaries, especially if there's commission or overtime earned, financials if you're self-employed, bank statements for all of your accounts because the bank wants to see a that income is going into it, but also any regular payments and things like that that are coming out of them. So we get three-month statements for that. And also if you've got an existing rental, things around that such as loan balances, what rent you've got coming in, things like that. Okay, so I meet with the advisor, I fill in a whole heap of forms, I give you all of the information, we have a chit chat about what I'm interested in, what happens next? So the advisor puts together the application and every bank likes to see things in a different way with different forms, different ways of calculating income expenses, things like that. So in this instance, we would go to the bank that we're getting the deposit from, which often is somebody's owner-occupied property, and we ask that bank to do a 20% deposit on either an estimate of what the purchase price will be or on whatever the contract is that signed. And then we go to a completely separate bank for the new build and we ask them to look at doing 80% lending of this property and take that property on as a security. It's a lot more work to do a split banking like that for, for an advisor. Do you get paid more for that? Not at all. And yeah, it is more work, especially, I mean, both at the beginning and the end of an application, but it is well worth it to protect somebody's usable equity and their choices in the future. The important thing there for investors and listeners of the show to just keep in mind is you're going to be putting in two applications, right? An application to one bank, an application in for another bank. And then there's probably going to be some back and forth. Yeah. So an assessor will get it. They'll start reading it, having a look through how that fits the bank policy. They might have a couple of questions as to why we've disregarded some expenses that they can see or how income works, the property, things like that. So you might have a little bit of back and forth with the advisor. We try and get everything up front so that there's 
as little back and forth with the bank as we can, but that's just them clarifying. It's actually a really good thing if the bank's asking questions. It means they're trying to approve it. Better to get a slow yes than a quick no, I always say. Okay, and so at that point, we're probably going to get conditionally approved from the bank, and they'll say, yep, subject to you finding a property we're all happy with, we'll lend you the money. But there's still two major pieces of work to go, right? So the first step is just to get conditionally approved, and all of the steps up to this point have just led to that conditional approval. What's next, April? So it's then getting the banks to approve the specific property that you are looking to purchase. And even though, for example, the bank that's taking the 20% deposit, they're not taking on the property, they still want to see the sales and purchase agreement, make sure it all adds up to the numbers that we've told them in the application. The bank that is going to do the lending and take that on, they want to see the build contract to make sure if there's any overruns or things like that in it, the specs, the renders, who's selling it, is it a known developer? There's a lot that the bank wants to look at in terms of the actual security itself. So we provide all of that to both sides. The rental appraisal was important, and then there's often a requirement for a registered valuation. And obviously this could be where some people get caught out because they've been pre-approved for a million dollars. They think, yeah, I'm all well and good. And then like an investor that I know of, they went and signed up for an apartment which didn't meet the size criteria that the bank was happy with, or it was a dual key, and so it was more complex. And and the bank that was doing the 80% said, we're not prepared to take that on and do 80% against it. Every bank has very specific criteria for the amount that it can be in the development, the size of the thing. Some are right down to car parking. And so that's why it's really important to get the bank to sign things off in advance where you can. I remember BNZ had, they were quite strict around saturation levels. So because they had, let's say, 20% market share at that time, if they had any more than 25% of a development, they just wouldn't do anything more because it was too risky. And that's really hard to know unless you're dealing direct with them at the time. So you just talked about getting a registered valuation. Now we're talking in this example of buying a property off the plans, right? A turnkey property that hasn't been built yet, but still we're going to need to get a registered valuation and pay for one. How much is that going to cost? It can cost anywhere between about 850 and 1100 And one of the things that tricks people is that the bank wants you to order it through one of their portals, which is where it's a completely random person. We don't get to pick it. The person doesn't get to pick it. And in the bank size, that makes it a little bit more independent and trustworthy. So we order it through there and make sure that it's one of the portals that the bank will allow. And that surprises people because they wonder, how can we value something that doesn't actually exist Mm. yet? So what do they do? They will go and have a look at the site so they can make some commentary around what's around it that might impact the value of the property. They will have a look at sales of similar properties that have been selling to it. If it was built today, and what that might potentially sell for. Okay, so then they're saying, okay, based on the fact that this is a really nice area, it's got some nice units down the road that are sold for a million dollars, a million dollars sounds about right. Yes, and they give a bunch of comparable sales, inferior, superior, and comparable, so that the bank has a bit more understanding, because there's no council valuation. There's no other way of really ascertaining what this is worth. Every bank's got different criteria if they need one or not. Okay, and then at that point, the bank's going to approve me for my property, and then I just wait till it's built. No, so that's not quite the case. So depending on the bank is how long they will approve a property for. So there are banks that will only approve for 90 days. You might be doing a build for 12 months. So it means you're going to have to keep refreshing that approval to make sure that you are safe and covered. Other banks might want you to do check-ins just to make sure that you are still in the same or better financial position before they settle you. And then we still have to deal with the deposit amount. Okay, this is all getting very complicated, April. What's the next step? So the next step is to go to the bank that's doing the 20% deposit, get rates from them as to how we're going to be locking that in and look to lock in what's usually a 10% deposit and get that drawn down so that you can pay the deposit when you're unconditional. 
and lock that contract in for yourself. But didn't I sign up for 20%? This always gets people because we use the same term deposit. So you need a 20% deposit for a new build investment in most cases. And so what we do is we get the 10% that's required by the contract and we get that paid across to the solicitor now and we hold the other 10% in a facility, either an offset revolving credit, a facility that the limit isn't going to drop on. The money is available for you at settlement. However, it's not getting charged any interest now. And this is really important because when a bank is looking to approve a build, they're often doing it for a longer period of time. But if it's just a top up on an existing security, those approvals don't last as long. So you really want to get that deposit locked in up front. Yeah, because if I end up getting my 100000 out to pay my 10% deposit on the contract and think, well, I've got another 100000 for later on, and then comes time to settle and my bank's had that approval lapse and they say, oh, you don't meet the criteria now because your house value's gone down, then I'm in trouble, right? Massive trouble. And so that's why it's always really good to get everything locked in advance. And the other thing is, is please don't spend the deposit. That's been set in place for the property. Yeah, some people will take that deposit and end up spending it on a car or a boat. Jet ski was a famous one for one of my investors. How much did the jet ski cost? $32,000. What was going through their mind? That that is exactly the question I asked. Where they were like, hey. He was like, well, I just figured I'd pay it back. I was like, but you haven't. (laughs) That's the big issue. And look, I know there's a lot of technical detail in the podcast that we've discussed so far. And I hope one of the big takeaways you're thinking is, look, I probably could go and get a mortgage myself and I probably could talk to the bank myself. But actually, it's going to be easier if I use a mortgage advisor and just have someone to walk me through the process. Because especially if if you're buying something that hasn't been built yet, there are a few more extra steps that you are going to want to follow or it's in your best interest to follow. It's just a bit easier if you've got someone to guide you through the process. Now, April, we've got an unconditional approval at this point. We've signed everything off. We've confirmed on the property. We're locked in to buy it. But yet there is still more work to do. What happens once we get to settlement where the property's built? What's the process then? One of the things that I like to advise clients to do between going unconditional and the property being due for settlement is to go into a bank and open accounts because you can bet you're going to be out of the country or something like that at settlement. Yeah. So it's good to get your accounts opened in that lag time between the going unconditional and the property being built. And also if you're going to create a company or something like that, it's a really nice time to do it in that piece so that you're not frantic at the end trying to get it sorted. But then at settlement, that's when we get a notification normally that the property is about to be inspected by the council because it is completed being built. And that is when your advisors will start kicking back into action. And the first thing that we look to do is order a completion valuation. But I already ordered a valuation. (laughs) And that's usually, that's often what we get back. And what it is, is we order a completion valuation. It's the same valuer who went through and valued it the first time. And what they did is they were valuing it on what it's worth in the market. This valuation is a lot cheaper. It's usually around half the cost, but it's that same independent person going back through the property and verifying that what they valued the first time was built. It hasn't gone from a four bedroom down to a one bedroom and it has the same amount of windows, the same appliances. It's worth the same as what they thought it was the first time. Now, just to clarify here, because this is something that confuses a lot of people, they might have had the market increase or in some cases decrease and the valuer puts the same value on it. Why is that? Because we haven't asked them to do a new market valuation, and that's why it's really important to get the market value done up front. What it is is just making sure that what was valued the first time is indeed what was built. And this has come about because there were some naughty people in Auckland that were doing developments that were saying it was something, and then 
only actually building something a lot smaller. You couldn't see that on the code, and the banks got surprised. By what it. a great scam! Yeah, so I was just thinking that. Yeah. I was thinking, That's quite a good one. So you say, "Oh, I'm building this five-bedroom, massive standalone house. Come look at the site and value yeah. it for me, yeah. Mister Valuer." And then we build a whole heap of one-bedroom apartments, yeah. and we've borrowed <laughs> lots of money against them. But obviously, the council reports the bank can't see that. And I remember April, we were talking before about how pretty much the reason for all of these steps is that at some point somebody did something a wee bit <laughs> naughty. And now the banks have learned their lesson and they're putting even more steps in. So if you ever think, why am I having to do all of these steps and all of these checks, you know, why is this? It's because someone else ruined the fun for you. <laughs> they got in the way and they did something naughty and now ANZ have got some extra steps in there to protect themselves and good on them. So I've done my completion valuation now. What we said was going to get built actually got built. Surely they're about to give me the money. How much more do I actually have to do here, April? Blood tests. Firstborn child. No, we're getting a lot closer now. So what we do is we supply the title and the code of compliance to the bank. So that is the unique identifier that the council has created that the bank can put their mortgage on. Every property has their own individual one. We need that to come out before the bank can place their mortgage on it. And then we also give them code of compliance, which is the council also signing off that it's been built to a standard that it should have been. And it's amazing that now's the time that we choose the interest rate. You know, some people think that they're going to choose the interest rate when they go unconditional on the lending, but that's often not the case. When you go unconditional is the 10% that we're taking out now. The rest of it, we are locking in at this point. So we ask the bank that's doing the 80% lending for a cash contribution and also for the interest rate so that whoever's purchasing the property can then talk through structure. Are we going to do a revolving credit? Are we going to have an offset facility? Are we fixing for one, two, three years? How all of that's going to work happens at this point when we're near settlement because the bank doesn't want to hold the money without getting their money back for it for too long. Surely there's nothing else to do. So then you also have to give the bank oh insurance. Oh, my God. <laughs> Forget it. <laughs> it's too hard. I don't want the properties. Okay, what else do we have to do? So we've locked in our structure. We've chosen our interest rates. The bank's going to give us $3,000 of cash. What else have we got to do? Well, in good news, you'll have already opened bank accounts and created your company. So it's just then that the bank will send your lawyer the loan documents for the 80% lending. You are going to send your lawyer the other 10% that's been sitting in a revolving credit and definitely not spent on a jet ski. I always say, just quickly as an internet safety piece here, please always check the account number with your lawyer by calling them because we're in prime scam territory. And yeah, and just just in case anyone wonders how that works, some very clever scammers overseas were intercepting invoices and changing the account number on it. So if Sue Foley sends me her account number, it's got the trust account number on it, they were going in and changing the account number, and I got this invoice from Sue Foley, so I go and pay it. Did that actually happen to you? No, 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 no. That's happened But it happened to... Yeah. to Maggie Smith from Taranaki. Oh, she's my favourite actress, old Maggie Smith. (laughs) So you've transferred your 10% and then you go and you lock in that 10%. It doesn't have to stay on a revolving credit rate. So you're able to then lock that in. So you're going to have the two fixed loans at 10% with your own bank and then the 80% loan that gets drawn down on settlement date. Your lawyer transfers the money and now you are a landlord. And I think a lot of people listening to this are going to be like, gosh, there are so many steps here. Now, we've, we've chosen quite a unique case, which is buying a turnkey property, a new build property that hasn't been built yet. Now, that's what a lot of listeners of this show end up going and doing. So we wanted to do that. But because it is a little bit more complicated, if you're going and you're buying your first home, it might not have as many steps. But this is good to go through and just understand what you may need to do. Because if you decide to go and buy something that's already built, some of these steps will come out but at least you know what a more complex situation looks like. And again, 
there are so many steps, so many things that could go wrong. And where a lot of property investors get tripped up is they say, well, nobody ever told me that I should have done that. I didn't know about that. That is why you use a mortgage advisor, someone who does this all of the time, who can hold your hand, tell you what you need to do so you actually go and set up your investment properties the right way. And I think a mortgage broker that specialises in what you want to do. So if you do want to buy turnkey investment properties, use someone like Opus Mortgages because they know those extra steps like getting a pre-allocated title number and ordering loan documents in advance to avoid a lot of hassles later on. But there are lots of mortgage advisors out there, so have a Google round, see who you like. Right, let's wrap it up there, but please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to the podcast. It really helps us get the message out to more people. Thanks for listening to the Property Academy podcast. I'm your host, Steve McKnight. And I'm Lee Nichols. And we're going to be back again tomorrow with even more daily strategies, tactics and insights to help you get the most of the property market. Until next time.